Good morning. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to be with you. Um, my voice is a little hoarse, and I'm having some voice cracks this morning um, because I spent all afternoon yesterday, really all day yesterday, yelling at referees and first graders uh, because I coached my little boys' uh, first grade basketball team. Uh, we're in March Madness. The tournament is upon us. Um, and we're in the semifinals this afternoon because I yelled, okay? And mostly, I was yelling for my boy to shoot the dang ball, which he did. And he had 16 of the 22 points last night. I know, right? Yeah. Is my son a ball hog? Don't care, okay? Don't care. That's why I coach, so that he can do that. Um, I, you know, there were some reports after the game on whether or not um, it was coaching or talent, but I don't really know what won us our games yesterday, but... Um, I did a few things. Uh, so anyway, my, ho- my voice is a little hoarse. I was yelling. It's like the Lord tells us not to have idols and then gives you a son who's playing a sport. Like, what do you want me to do with this? Um, anyway, sorry. This is not my counseling session. We are, you are here to hear a sermon. Um, so we are gonna dive in. We are in the middle of a series um, called Be Curious. Uh, This is uh, exploring the life of Jesus, that we would be in search of the real Jesus together. Uh, This is a nod to Ted Lasso, being curious, not judgmental, that you would uh, risk doing that with the person of Jesus, Uh, be curious about him before you judge him, Um, that you would uh, explore this mystery of a man who is um, divine, uh, become flesh, explore this mystery who is fully God and fully man, um, this paradox of a human being named Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And what we'll find as we come explore these encounters with Jesus, as we're curious about it all semester, here's the hope, is that we would lean further and further into uh, the transcendence of this man who is fully God, and we would encounter this man who we can't fully comprehend and can't fully understand, but at the same time, we would encounter the God-man, that he is near to us, that he is real with skin and bone, that he is, he is actually who he says he is. And so while he is transcendent and beyond our comprehension, he is not too far off to be known and experienced. And so that is the mystery of Jesus, who never seems to do what we want him to do, but always does what we need him to do. And he always seems to be beyond us, but always seems to be calling us to himself more fully. And so bring your questions this semester. I promise you we can't answer all of them. I promise you Jesus isn't afraid of them though. And if you would risk, um, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, if you've been in church since you were a fetus or if this is your first season uh, of exploring Jesus in the church, that you would risk being curious about him as he is presented to us in the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're gonna be jumping around all semester looking at these personal, intentional encounters with Jesus. So I hope you come with us. Today's encounter is no less mysterious, no less, no less paradoxical, no less in some ways infuriating, but in, in many ways no less majestic uh, and enticing as today's. So we're going to be studying a man in his encounter with Jesus um, named Nicodemus, uh, who is familiar, but I hope that even if you're familiar that there will be a, a second um, naivete, a, a, a fresh encounter with this encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus. So uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1 is where we will be, it'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you. John chapter three, starting in verse one, says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So sometimes when we come to these teachings from Jesus um, and, and encounter him, um, as a teacher, a teacher of God's word, and I, I spent some years in the classroom teaching as well, it is the job of the teacher um, many, many, in many ways to make the content clear and understandable. And Jesus is supposed to be this master teacher, and yet there seems to always be these encounters where he will leave the encounter, leave the teaching, and not seem to care that his teaching does not make sense. Like, Jesus, you didn't clear that up, bro. Like, you're talking about water and birth and wind and what is this weird reference to Moses at the end? And he just moves on to the next thing. Like, he's not going, all right, let's pause so you can understand what I'm talking about. He doesn't mind leaving the listener with more questions. And as the teacher, you go, well, that's infuriating. It's the job of the teacher, I thought, to make sure that when you teach something, people leave there being able to fully understand it and that it's clear. And so I have to just confess that I am, I am called to teach this passage today, and it's a passage where Jesus doesn't fully explain everything, and yet I think in the next 30 or 90 minutes that I could explain everything to you. Like, that's probably not gonna happen, so here's what you need to know. You will leave here with more questions, because Jesus seemed to be just fine letting Nicodemus leave with more questions. But let's see what we do know. Let's see what is going on, what we can comprehend here. We learn a little bit about Nicodemus, who this man was throughout the passage. Verse one tells us something really important about him. We throw out verse one for me. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, that line right there, a ruler of the Jews, was a position. That meant he was a part of the Jewish or the Israelite Supreme Court. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he had a ton of political power. He had a ton of political clout. He had authority. He had influence. The Sanhedrin is the body of, of Jewish men who will condemn Jesus to death later on in his life. This is the, these are the people that heard the trials and heard the cases and ruled on whether or not someone was breaking the law, the Jewish law or not. He had a ton of power. And then we learn, not only is he a member of the Supreme Court, not only is he a member of the Sanhedrin, look at what we learn in verse 10. Can you find verse 10 up there? Do we have verse 10? Colin and Hunter, this, this is, you're on trial. Okay, kidding. There we go. Good job. Way to go. Um, you get a raise. Uh, verse 10 says this, are you the teacher in Israel? 
and you still do not understand these things? When he says, are you the teacher, that definite article, the teacher, is not just a grammatical insertion. The teacher was a position, it was a title, it was an office. He is the highest teacher of Jewish law and Old Testament in the entire land of Israel. He has ascended to the top. He's gotten all the PhDs. He's gotten all the academia. He's, gotten, he's, he's written all the dissertations. He's climbed the, 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 the ivory tower and he now sits at the top as the teacher in Israel. So not only is he the most um, well-read, well-versed, well-learned man in all things Judaism and all things Old Testament, he's also a member of the Supreme Court. So think about this man, and commentators talk about him a lot. He's potentially the most educated, wealthy, moral, politically influential man in all of Israel. Some commentators think that behind Herod, the king, Nicodemus was the second most powerful man in the country. He has political clout, he has spiritual clout, he has social clout, he has economic clout. This man is, has a lot of letters before and after his name the Reverend Professor Dr. Nicodemus. Like he has a, he's, he's got a lot of degrees, he's very important, and he's earned it. He has worked his way up, he's read the books, he's studied the cases, he's ruled on the cases. He sits in a seat that no one else sat in. And so this very established man, this very powerful man, this very learned man, this very achieved man comes to Jesus, what do we learn in verse one? At night. And you say, well of course he does. He cannot be seen with this man, Jesus. The Sanhedrin hates Jesus. The Sanhedrin is trying to crucify this man, Jesus. The most powerful member of the Jewish society is sneaking around coming to Jesus. This same group that will sentence Jesus to death in a few years, their leader wants to come learn from Jesus. And so if he wants to come learn from Jesus, you would go, of course you have to come at night. If Ben Shapiro wants to go learn from Joe Biden, he can't live stream it, okay? <laughs> Like he's gotta come in the cloud and don't run, I'm not making any comments, okay? Roll with the metaphor, okay? I'm saying to you that men on this side don't cross the aisle to this side unless they have the cover of darkness. And he's literally coming to him and saying, teach me. I'm the teacher in Israel. No one teaches me and I'm having you teach me. How do we know that? Because what is the title that Nicodemus uses of Jesus? Rabbi. This is the, teach this is the rabbi. This is the dude. And he calls another man rabbi, which means teacher. And this is what he says to him. Rabbi, teacher. There's like an implicit question in the, in the statement. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That plural pronoun, we know, means Jesus, we've been talking about you. And I'm not supposed to be here to tell you this. We know you're from God. We know you've got something that we don't. We know that you speak of the divine. And there's this implicit question of like, Rabbi, like, can you kind of help us understand? Can you kind of help teach? Like we've declared, we've met the ivory tower, the academic circle, the political, the Sanhedrin. We've met, and we've talked. We know that you're from God and, and I'm here to learn from you. And then Jesus changes gears. And this is partially what's infuriating and mysterious about him because think about this. Nicodemus was an influencer. 
Like he had so much clout and ability to influence an entire culture. Like couldn't Jesus have cleared up a lot of the confusion and a lot of the hate and a lot of the social angst against him if he's like, I've got the most famous TikTok star in Israel and I could clear everything up with him and he could just put it out there and clear it up and everybody underneath him would go, oh, we don't have to hate Jesus that much. Like Jesus has an opportunity here to clear the air. Like the leader of the other side is coming to them going, we know. And Jesus going, thank you. It's about time. I'm tired of these people hating me. I'm tired of people plotting to kill me. Let me clear up some things for you, Nicodemus. And you go tell your people that they don't have to hate me. He doesn't do that. This is how Jesus answers him in verse three. Verse three says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus, you just said something um, that is kind of an answer to something or a statement of, uh, in response to something, but Nicodemus wasn't talking about the kingdom of God. What, why are you not, why did you just shift gears over here? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. You're the teacher in Israel. You're a member of the Supreme Court in Israel. I know you have the whole Old Testament memorized, which means you know all about the kingdom of God. And as a Jew of Jew and a Pharisee of Pharisees, you are waiting on the kingdom of God to come to the world. You have been promised that one day the Messiah King would come and would restore Israel. You've been promised, Nicodemus, and you know the Old Testament scriptures that says when the kingdom of God comes, the world will be healed and Israel will be restored. And you know you're waiting and longing for the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, I got a secret. It's here and it's right in front of you and you can't see it. He says it again in verse five. He talks about the kingdom of God again. Verse five says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Hey, Nicodemus, this kingdom that you've so longed for, this kingdom that you so waited for, and you want me to maybe give you like some, um, some teaching about some, some situation or some religious issue that you've come to talk to me about, and I'm telling you, hey, it's bigger than that, and I'm telling you this kingdom that you've waited for is here, it's sitting right in front of you. The king of this kingdom is here, and you can't see it, and you can't enter it. Whoa, Jesus, like, wait, wait, wait. This guy I thought was coming to you humbly saying, Rabbi, teach you or teach me. He's going, yeah, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, the kingdom is here and you can't see it. The kingdom is here and you're not entering it. Unless, Nikki, unless you're born again. Okay, so I know as soon as a pastor in a church says that phrase, born again that if, if you were raised in the church, especially potentially raised in the Southern church, a lot of narratives fill your mind. At least a lot of history fills your mind. You gotta be a born again Christian. You born again, you born again, you born again. And here's what I need to say about that. Just because it's familiar and overused doesn't make it any less true, okay? That's really important to note. But here's a, another important thing to note about that phrase, born again. Jesus says it here, you must be born again. It's the only time in all of Jesus' ministry he uses that phrase. One time. Jesus doesn't say you must be born again to the woman at the well. Jesus doesn't say you must be born again to the thief on the cross. Jesus doesn't say you must be born again to the paralytic that we studied last week with Daryl. It's the only time Jesus uses this phrase, which doesn't make it any less true. Jesus said it. Here's what it does mean. It does mean that maybe it doesn't mean what you've heard that it means. 
Because Jesus is using this like a master surgeon, like a master teacher. There's something about this metaphor of being born again, of having a new birth, of being reborn. There's something about this metaphor of birth that is meant to cut to the heart of Nicodemus. Something about this metaphor is meant to drive a point, drive a reality into the heart of Nicodemus. And Jesus knew that this metaphor is what I have to use to get into this man, which may mean it's what he has to use to get into some of us. But Jesus used it just here, but he uses it, uses it twice. Twice Jesus says, you must be reborn. You must be born again. So let's play with this birth metaphor for a minute to see what Jesus might be doing. We're in a town of artists and songwriters who understand metaphors. What is Jesus doing with the metaphor? What's he trying to say? Let's talk about it. Let's just pull the string on this metaphor, see where this thread leads us. Who in the room played a role in their own birth? None of you, interesting. Who in the room contributed anything geographically, monetarily, medically, emotionally, to their own birth? Who is in control of their own birth? Who does all the work for a baby to be born? The fathers. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. My wife is in the room, so I will stop talking. Uh, no, who labors for a birth to happen? Is it the baby? Who's going through the pain? Who's making this happen? Who's causing this to be a, become a reality? The baby has no control over where they're born, how they're born, anything, when they're born. In other words, this, this is the point of the metaphor, birth is something that happens to you. Birth is a passive experience for the one being born. The born again metaphor that Jesus uses with Nicodemus is meant to drive right out of the gate with this conversation with Nicodemus. It's meant to drive into the heart of Nicodemus how truly helpless he is. He's driving Nicodemus deep into his need. Nicodemus, if you wanna see the kingdom and enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. Oh, and by the way, there's nothing that you contributed to your birth, remember? He says to a man that has everything, politically, socially, economically, religiously, this man has everything. The reverend professor doctor, here's what he says to him. You need to be completely remade. You need a complete rebirth. And when you get born, when something happens to you, no one cares about your titles anymore. Like all those go away. All that stuff you've worked your whole life to build, I'm telling you birth is gonna start all that over. The only way to enter this kingdom, Nicodemus, the only way to see this kingdom is to have it happen to you. Something you need, Nicodemus, something that I know that you want is to see and enter the kingdom. And I'm telling you, you can't do it. And remember, this, this reverend professor doctor is hearing this, okay? This teacher from God, this rabbi who I came to learn from is now telling me that there is this kingdom and it's here and I can't see it. So what do you think the reverend professor doctor does in response to the birth metaphor? At first, he actually does it twice. Look at how Nicodemus responds. This is the teacher in Israel. Verse four. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
So here's what's interesting. He does it again after verse nine when Jesus in verse eight gives the second reborn, rebirth uh, statement. In both responses that Nicodemus has to the reborn, born againness that Jesus says, this is how Nicodemus responds. How? How is one to do this? How is one to achieve this new birth? How? Jesus gives this spiritual teaching on a reality that says, hey, there's a kingdom that I know you want to be real because it's gonna be everything you ever dreamed and more. It's gonna, be, it's gonna satisfy all of your longings. It's gonna heal the world, this kingdom, Nicodemus, that you are so longing for. I'm telling you it's here and you won't see it and you won't enter unless you're reborn. And Nicodemus says, tell me how to do that. The teaching that Jesus gives is supposed to dismantle Nicodemus' pride and self-reliance. It's supposed to humble him. It's to show him how um, helpless he truly is in light of the reality of this kingdom. And yet Nicodemus twice responds, how? This is where Nicodemus shows his cards. Because how is the question of the self-sufficient. And the self-sufficient, Jesus says, will never see or enter the kingdom. The helpless don't ask how. They cry for help. But Nicodemus, your whole life, you've been laid out with, here's how you achieve this, here's how you accomplish this, and you've done it. That's how you got to this seat as the second most powerful man in Israel. Here's the path to the PhD. Here's the path to political power. Here's the internships you have to get. Here's the Bible you must memorize. How do I climb? How do I achieve? How do I accomplish? How do I earn? How do I merit? And he's done it every time with five gold stars. And yet Jesus says, your question is what's revealing why I'm using this metaphor. You think if I just told you how, you could go accomplish it. And I'm telling you about a kingdom that has nothing to do with your accomplishments. The helpless don't ask how. They cry for help. I was on a walk a few years ago with a mentor of mine, and um, I don't even remember the scenario that we were talking about, but he was giving wisdom and, and guidance and, and helping. And he started you know, dropping some truth bombs and some nuggets, and I just stopped him on the walk, and I said, how am I supposed to do that? And he said, quit asking how. I said, okay, Morpheus, I just, need you, I just need you to tell me how. And he said, that's the point. When you quit asking how, you might actually learn how to walk in it. But as long as you're asking how, as long as you're saying, just give me the checklist, just tell me what I gotta go do to get the result that I need, you won't be able to see the kingdom. We only ask how when we so believe in our own abilities and merits we only ask how when we believe in our own accomplishments and our own doings. That if someone were to just lay out a roadmap for me on how to get from A to B, I'll go do it. That's why you're in Nashville. Because someone gave you a how and you did it. That's why you came to Belmont or Vandier. That's why you're here to do music or healthcare or some job or some startup. Someone gave you a how and you did it. If you're paying rent in Nashville, then you have been given a how and someone has said you can do it. Someone has looked at you and said, wow, look at how incredible you are. Look at how self-sufficient you are. You are a self-made human. The fact that you can survive in this city in any stretch of the imagination means someone has given you a how and you have climbed the ladder and made it happen. You wouldn't be in this city if on some levels you didn't have a degree of self-sufficiency. And Jesus flips all that on his head for Nicodemus and for us. 
He says, seeing and entering the kingdom does not come by asking how. Nicodemus, you have to be reborn. And if you remember Nicodemus, you had nothing to do with your first birth. You don't have anything to do with your fleshly birth. I'm telling you about entering the kingdom. It's the same way. You have to quit asking how. And then Jesus goes one step further. Again, he's just using the birth metaphor. Nicodemus responds with how twice, and Jesus doesn't answer it. I mean, he does in a way, but it's, it's not really an answer. Because look at what Jesus says next. He says, okay, you, you're not gonna see or enter the kingdom unless you are reborn. Oh, and by the way, if you remember, getting born is a passive thing. It happens to you. And then he says, but if a birth is gonna happen, it has to happen to you, and it has to come from the Spirit. Look at verse eight. He switches metaphors here. He starts like combining metaphors, but listen to what he says. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Born of the spirit. So what's gonna cause a spiritual rebirth? It's like the wind. You wanna see and enter the kingdom? You have to be reborn, which you can't control. Oh, and if you're ever gonna be reborn, the spirit has to be the one to do it to you. Oh, and by the way, the spirit is like the wind. You can't see it, you can't control it, you can't manipulate it, you can't achieve your way into getting what you want from it. Wind is, we were talking about this at my small group this week, wind is potentially one of the only things in our world, for Jesus to use this, this uh, metaphor, that everyone in the room agrees is a real thing and no one has seen it. Everyone believes in the wind. Everyone would agree the wind is real, but you have never seen the wind. And Jesus is going, yeah, it's kind of like that. You can't see it, you can't control it, you can't manipulate it. And this spirit, this wind, will do whatever it pleases, and in doing whatever it pleases, the spirit will be the one to decide whether or not you were reborn. Jesus is doing this masterful wordplay here. The, the New Testament of the Bible was written in ancient Greek. And the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit, what the book of John was written in, the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit is the same word, pneuma. He's saying the wind and the spirit are so alike, they're so alike, it's the same word, that the wind's presence cannot be denied, neither can the spirit's. The wind's power can be seen and felt, so can the spirits. And yet you have no idea where it comes from or no idea how to stop it from doing whatever it wants to do. If we were to read it in you know, Spanglish or Greeklish, here's what, it, here's what he's saying. Hear it this way, because this is how Nicodemus would have heard it. The pneuma blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. It's like, wait, what, okay, are you, what? <laughs> like, so the wind and the spirit are, but the, the wind is real, and so the spirit's real too, and, but wait, I don't control the wind, and I can't, but if you're gonna be reborn, it has to, he's dancing in and out of this mystic metaphor, this wind and spirit, and again, Jesus the teacher is trying to drive Nicodemus somewhere, he doesn't use the wind analogy with anyone else, he's trying to drive him to something that is showing him just how out of control he is in the need for this rebirth and the one who controls the rebirth, which is the spirit. We were at staff retreat a few years ago when our staff was 
much smaller as a midtown movement, uh, we would go to this lake house at Center Hill Lake and the, the man that owned the house would let us use his boat and, um, you know, go tubing and skiing and stuff. And so we're out there at our, at our staff retreat um, and we, we go in for like, you know, going out for the afternoon ride and um, we get in the boat and we had checked the weather, but Center Hill Lake, you know, sometimes storms just kind of swoop in. It said it was going to be clear, but we get out on the boat and we get about 500 yards or knots, I don't know. We get, we get, away, from, we get away from the dock. We're, we're, we're out past the dock. And um, Dave Burden, our Creve Hall pastor, was, was driving the boat that I was on with him. And I'm not exaggerating this. We like, the wind kind of starts to swoop in and the rain clouds start swirling over. And it's like, oh shoot, we didn't, this wasn't planned for. And a like water tornado, literally like <laughs> swoops down onto the water and starts spinning. And it's like just past the dock that we need to get back to, but it's coming at us. And it's terrifying. I'm like, we all, I mean, and the, the, the waves are starting to go and, and the, I mean, and we, we're watching this tornado form on the water and we're freaking out. I'm like, this is how it's all gonna go down. I'm gonna go down with a corona in my hand. You know, it's like, it's bad. And, and so, so like, we, we have to like get back to the dock, but how are we supposed to do that? And so Dave is like trying to, I mean, it was, it was, it was terrifying. We were like a pinball in a pinball machine. We were like the wind's chew toy, <laughs> like just, it was, it was like throwing us around and we didn't, I, there were moments at least for about three or four minutes where literally everyone on the boat was like, I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do. If you've had those moments like in nature or in something like car accidents where you're like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it out of here. That's what we were all feeling. This might be it. And somehow like the tornado like moves away from the dock that we need to get back to and Dave kind of goes a long way around and is able to get us back in the dock and it's going crazy and we like tie it down and run to the clubhouse and just watch the skies open up. And we're sitting around looking at each other realizing like we didn't die. But we also realized the only reason we're alive was because the wind blew where it wanted. We didn't like figure it out. We didn't like break it down and go like, oh man, yeah, if you go, you know, 100 yards this way and then turn, we'll be able to, it was like, we were just at the mercy of the wind. Because the wind blew where it wanted to blow, we were alive. We were powerless against the wind. Jesus says, so it is with the spirit. Like it's easy to think about that Jesus uses this wind analogy and you think of like Winnie the Pooh, blustery day, where it's like just a calm and gentle, but like, Nicodemus would have been a man who realized like that sea of Galilee out there that I've been on before, when the wind blows on that, you're at the mercy of the wind. I know what a scary windstorm is like. I know you're not talking about gentle breezes. You're talking about a powerful force in nature. And Jesus says, the spirit is the most powerful, most powerful spiritual force in the universe. Humanity is powerless to do anything to stop the spirit from doing what the spirit wishes to do. You cannot control him. You cannot make him do what you want. The spirit moves, and remember, he's mixing with the birth metaphor. The spirit moves and blows where it wishes and gives rebirth to whoever it wishes. You need this rebirth, or you will not see an heir of the kingdom. If you want this rebirth, it's gotta come from the spirit. And the spirit blows wherever it wants. Please feel the weight of these words. That Jesus is driving Nicodemus to his complete inability to save himself. 
It drives Nicodemus into a helpless state. He is more aware of his need, hopefully, with these metaphors that are coming at him. One commentator I read this week said that Nicodemus was the sum of all of his yesterdays. And here this man who is the sum of all of his yesterdays, the Reverend Professor Doctor, all that he's worked to achieve and accomplish, is hearing from Jesus just how useless his yesterdays are for the reality of the kingdom. The letters in front of your name don't get you into the kingdom, Nicodemus. You have worked and understood. You have howled yourself up this ladder. And I'm telling you that the way that you're defining yourself by those things, the way that you think that gives you a right to be in places, the way that you think it gives you a spiritual awakening more than all these other people because you are the teacher on the Sanhedrin court, I'm telling you all of your yesterdays are worthless in the kingdom. The helplessness of these verses is meant to slap us in the face. It should terrify us that Jesus is speaking like this to Nicodemus because you have yesterdays too. You've built a life on what you've accomplished and you and I are constantly in the courtroom of our heads measuring ourselves against what we think we have to accomplish or do or be or achieve in order to enter and see the kingdom. And Jesus says, The new birth you need, the renewal you need is something you cannot will yourself into. You cannot work yourself into. You cannot achieve yourself into. Jesus is saying you are far more helpless than you ever let yourself think or feel about your life. We build our life to not ever be this needy. I need to make enough money. I need to have the kind of house. I need to have the friendships. I need to have the circles. I need to have the networks. I need to think my way through. I need to have the plans. I need to have the seat in the office. I need to have all those things to be secure. I build my life to not ever be helpless. And then when I'm faced with something that I have to find out that my yesterdays can't control or can't secure for me, it's terrifying. Wait, you mean that all of the raising and all of the disciplining and all of the praying and all of the the raising up in the right way that I do for my kids doesn't secure it for me? You mean that all of the Bible reading and you mean that all of the friendships and all the small groups and all the church going, you mean that all the religious practices that I've done, you mean that everything I've worked for isn't gonna give me the life that I want? You mean that all of the counseling and all of the self-discovery and all of the journeying and all of the Enneagram numbering and all the things that I've gone, I might still be discontent at the end of this? Haven't I deserved something better? Don't I deserve a better life than the one that you've given? Look at my yesterdays, Jesus. Why did I do all this for you? Why did I do all this for me if you're telling me that it might not work? Are you afraid of a God like that or are you offended by a God like that? To know that you've spent your whole life building a reputation or a status or a persona and Jesus looks at you like he does to Nicodemus and says, your yesterdays don't mean anything to me. Whoa, Jesus. I thought, I thought we kind of had a, th- like, you know, I thought if I worked the way that, I thought that if I got up and prayed, I thought that if I married the right person, I thought that if I moved to the right city and went to the right church, I, th- I, th- I thought that we kind of, you know. 
What is Jesus doing here? Like Nicodemus came to learn from him. Rabbi, teacher, teach me something. And Jesus is using all these mystic metaphors, potentially leaving Nicodemus even more confused. What's he doing? Is it possible that Jesus loves Nicodemus enough to bring him to the point of his helplessness so that he might finally see and enter the kingdom? If the self-sufficient never see and enter the kingdom, is it possible that Jesus would love you enough to use whatever metaphor you might need to get you to the point of your helplessness where instead of asking how, you would simply cry for help? Is it possible that the kingdom is something that one can know even if one doesn't understand it? And is it possible that the king of that kingdom is the same way? That you could leave here being more confused by Jesus based on these mystic metaphors and what he's saying, but truly knowing him deeper. Because look at this mysterious close that Jesus wraps up with. We, we finished at verse 15, which a lot of Bibles break there, but the conversation continues. The very next verse after our section is the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. It's really helpful to know that John three sixteen comes in the context of a conversation not a like poster board at a football game. Like this was, he was talking to somebody when he said that line, for God so loved the world. He wanted Nicodemus to hear that. But right before he goes there, the, this part of the conversation, before it transitions to the second half of the conversation, Jesus gives this mysterious invitation. Look at what he says. After all this talk of birth and wind and spirit and kingdom, look at what he says in verse 13 through 15. We throw this back up there. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, son of man, sitting right in front of you, Nicodemus. And then this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What are you talking about, Jesus? What in the world? What's, what, look at verse 14 again. And as Moses, okay, so we're, now we're like back in the Old Testament. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Jesus plucks this really weird, strange, distinct, bizarre story from the Old Testament. It's so strange and bizarre that he would pluck this one out. It's six verses long in the Old Testament. Like, this is not a story that we cover in Kid Town downstairs or VBS. Like, no one knows this story. Nicodemus did. And so Jesus, again, particular to Nicodemus, what did Nicodemus need from him, gives Nicodemus this plucking of the story and says, hey, that story that you're familiar with, it was all about me. So what's the story? Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites have been set free, been um, on the book of Exodus, they've been delivered from slavery in the land of Egypt and they, get, they cross the Red Sea and they get to Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle built and then they leave Mount Sinai and they head to the promised land. Takes them 40 years to go from Mount Sinai to the promised land. Should have taken them 14 days, took them 40 years. And that wilderness wandering is mostly covered in the book of Numbers. 
It's not a whole lot written about it, but it is a, it's a story where they just keep rebelling, they keep disobeying, they keep rejecting the God that has saved them, and God keeps disciplining them and wooing them back to himself and going, I loved you, you're the treasure that I saved, and you're rebelling against me, and you're worshiping golden calves and running off. And so they, it's 40 years, they cycle around. One of those cycles, Numbers 21, one little part of that cycle is this little story. The people are rebelling and complaining and grumbling. They're being horrible people. Again, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, these groaners and grumblers. And so God's discipline of them this round is that he sends poisonous snakes among them to buy them and to kill off the complainers. Okay, and so then the people of God in the Old Testament are freaking out. They go, okay, we get it again. We're sorry again. You sent these snakes to us. Like snakes in the desert sounds terrible and they're poisonous. And, and, and the Lord and the people go, Moses, you gotta stop this. Like we're all dying of snake bites. And Moses goes as the intercessor goes and pleads before the Lord and says, the people are repentant. Would you forgive them and show them mercy again? And God says, Yes. And here's how you're going to heal these people from their snake bites. He could have just taken the snakes away. He didn't do that. Here's what he tells Moses. Moses, you need to go and catch one of these poisonous snakes. Nate Bargatze would have some words about that. You have to go and catch one of these poisonous snakes, kill it, and then wrap it around this bronze pole. And then you need to hold the serpent around the bronze pole, hold it up, and as you walk through the camp of Israel, anybody that's been bitten by a poisonous snake, all they have to do is behold and look upon the snake wrapped around the pole and they'll be instantly healed. Strange and bizarre. Like, what is going on in Numbers chapter 21? And it, and it happens. The people of God that look, and you can imagine, like, being in their tents, like, bitten, dying from this poisonous snake, and just catching a glimpse, beholding and gazing upon this serpent wrapped around a pole, just walking through the camp, and they're healed. By the way, side note, that bronze serpent pole is on the back of every ambulance you've ever seen, by the way. That's where that comes from. A little anecdote for you. Um, but it's strange and bizarre. And what is Jesus doing plucking that out? Nicodemus would have had that story memorized. And so this whole little interaction of going, wait, wait, I know that story of Moses and the woman holding up the snake. Jesus is going, yeah, that was actually, that was all about me. He's saying, hey, um, just like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, I too will be lifted up. And when you look at me, you'll be healed. And he's saying, just like the serpent in the story, that serpent that got wrapped around the bronze pole that had to be lifted up, that serpent had to die so that all those who were helpless might be healed. He's saying the same thing's gonna happen to me too, Nicodemus. You know that serpent didn't get wrapped around the pole unless he was killed. You know this story, Nicodemus. I'm telling you, the son of man, the king of the kingdom that's in front of you, the same thing's gonna happen to me. This wind, this spirit that can do whatever it wishes, Nicodemus. This God that nothing can control or manipulate or this God who you cannot achieve your way into his kingdom because just like the wind, he does whatever he wishes. I'm telling you that that God chose to do this. And if you behold the son of man lifted up and you gaze upon him, you'll be healed too. If you gaze upon the son of man lifted up, Nicodemus, you will see and enter the kingdom. 
Because when you see him, Nicodemus, when you see him lifted up, you'll realize that all of your yesterdays can't save you. And when you gaze upon him, Nicodemus, you'll realize that your self-sufficiency is insufficient. And if you behold him lifted up, Nicodemus, you will see this king and this kingdom and what it's all about. If you see the son of man slaughtered and lifted up for you, you will see the king and his kingdom come. Behold the king. Because when you behold this king lifted up, you'll see and you will enter the kingdom. So he tells Nicodemus. He's inviting him with all the mystery and all of the profundity and all of the what is birth and wind. And then he's saying, I know you don't understand it all. And I'm not trying to get you to understand it all. I'm trying to invite you to lay down your how and come and gaze. I'm inviting you to come and see the Son of Man lifted up. This same spirit that blew you here tonight, Nicodemus, will blow me to cross beams. And remember, the wind and the spirit does whatever it wishes, and this is what I wish to do. You might be curious to know what happens to Nicodemus. You might wonder how, how long he kept asking how. You might wonder if this conversation so offended him that he never wanted anything else to do with Jesus. But later on in the book of John, Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, and crucified. John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified and dead, hanging naked on crossbeams. He's lifted up and slaughtered so that the world might be healed for all that look at him. And then immediately after Jesus is crucified, listen to this little tidbit that the author John slides in there for us. John chapter 19, I'm gonna read a couple verses. Just listen to this. It says, after these things, like the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the son of man being lifted up like the serpent. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly a disciple for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So Joseph of Arimathea came and took his body away. Next verse. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, now sees Jesus in the day. He saw the Son of Man lifted up, and he quit asking how. And the wind that blew him to Jesus that night many years before blew him to the foot of the cross and he beheld his king lifted up. He was healed when he saw the son of man lifted up. And he's so healed, he spends his money, 75 pounds of burial spices, myrrh and aloes. It would have been so expensive, 75 pounds of that that some scholars think that it would have taken over 150 servants to carry all of that to, to the cross and to the tomb for them to bury Jesus. Nicodemus is going, everything I have is yours, Jesus. You can have all of it. All my yesterdays don't matter anymore. I don't, I don't, need, I don't need my clout. I don't need my position. I don't need my money. You can have it all. He spends the money, he spends his own money to embalm the body of the king that he now finds precious and enter the kingdom that he now sees. 
That's the Jesus you're dealing with. And if you can't see it, keep looking at the king who was raised up until you do. That this wind, this spirit that blows where it wills, blew Jesus to the cross to be lifted up, that those who look at him might be healed. Let's pray. Jesus, we are incredibly self-sufficient. We're incredibly um, trustworthy of our own yesterdays. What we've done to make you do what we think you should do for us. So Jesus, would you change us, even those of us who are believers in the room, change us from those that ask how to those that readily and naturally cry for help. Bless this time, Lord, now as we come to your table to behold what our King has done for us. In your name, amen.